This week, Judge Montali denies TCC's motion for supplemental disclosure. Sanchez's plan includes equitization of DIP. Quorum Health files for Chapter 11. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjana. Later this episode, Covenant analyst Lev Bredo will take us to Muniland, where tax-exempt issues have traded down dramatically following the coronavirus pandemic. And of course, stick around for Sean Daly to discuss how bankruptcies this week were affected by COVID-19. It's Sunday, April 12th. On Tuesday, Judge Dennis Montali denied the motion of the official Tort Claimants Committee, or TCC, for supplemental disclosure with respect to the proposed plan and issues related to the value of the $6.75 billion of stock to be transferred to the Fire Victim Trust. The TCC had sought permission to advise fire claimants, whose claims are impaired under the plan, quote, to withhold their votes at least until the end of the month, by which time the TCC hopes and believes there will be further developments in the plan negotiation process to inform the class members more fully. However, beyond the, quote, time pressures arising from AB 1054's, quote, looming June 30th deadline, the TCC's proposed relief is not appropriate, Judge Montali's order said. Judge Montali emphasized that the court already approved the disclosure statement and that, quote, virtually all of the issues raised by the TCC in the motion and proposed letter were well known at the time of the final hearing on the DS. At an earlier hearing, counsel for the TCC had maintained that the plan on file is not consistent with the deal struck and that additional disclosure is needed with respect to the timing of funding, stock registration agreement, and the value of the stock to be provided under the victim's trust. Counsel for the debtors had defended the plan and the deal reached with the TCC, saying that the TCC's request for the court's imprimatur on the supplemental disclosure was a result of being, quote, afraid of the consequences and attempting to shield the committee from potential liability for its, quote, silly letter. Debtors' counsel emphasized that the restructuring support agreement agreed upon with the TCC does not provide a guarantee of the stock value or the timing of the registration agreement, adding that the disclosure statement and recently approved DS supplement clearly outline those provisions and note that the value of the stock can fluctuate. Counsel to the SLF fire victim claimants reiterated opposition to the TCC supplemental disclosure motion during the hearing, adding that their clients have been clearly advised that the value of the stock may fluctuate, but that, in their view, it was the best deal that could be reached. The debtors in the long-running Sanchez Energy cases on Monday evening filed their long-awaited plan and disclosure statement. At a hearing last Thursday, counsel said the debtors' ability to file a plan was a result of mediation overseen by Judge David Jones. As a result of the mediation, the debtors reached an agreement with the dip lenders on a plan under which approximately $150 million of dip claims would be, quote, entirely equitized. A valuation analysis prepared by Molus estimates the enterprise value of the reorganized debtors on a going concern basis at approximately $65 million to $95 million, with a midpoint of $80 million. The plan would distribute 20% of pre-dilution reorganized equity to the dip lenders upon emergence, and the remaining 80% would be distributed only following resolution of outstanding lien-related litigation, which could see value shift to unsecured creditors if lien challenges are ultimately successful. 
At a Thursday hearing, Judge Marvin Isker conditionally approved the debtor's disclosure statement and set the combined DSN confirmation hearing for April 30th at 10 a.m. ET. Judge Isger told the parties that in light of their desire to emerge by the end of April, they should be, quote, ready to close on the afternoon of the 30th if the plan is ultimately confirmed. A confirmation hearing may include a valuation fight after debtors' counsel confirmed at Thursday's hearing that the debtors will be seeking a finding on valuation. Counsel to the ad hoc group of unsecured note holders expressed concerns that a specific finding on valuation could allow the dip lenders to accrue value they might not otherwise be entitled to, among other concerns with the plan. The official committee of unsecured creditors expressed similar concerns regarding a valuation finding at confirmation. Quorum Health Corp., a Brentwood, Tennessee-based operator of general acute care hospitals and outpatient health care facilities, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the District of Delaware on Wednesday, April 7th, reporting $373 million in assets and $1.262 billion in liabilities. The debtors also disclosed an April 6th restructuring support agreement with a prearranged plan supported by consenting first lien lenders holding approximately 74.7% of first lien loan claims and consenting note holders holding approximately 97.3% of the 11 and 5 8 senior notes due 2023. In line with the RSA, the debtors filed a Chapter 11 plan and accompanying disclosure statement providing for a, quote, comprehensive deleveraging of their balance sheet that would reduce aggregate debt by approximately $500 million. The debtors began solicitation of the plan on April 6th and proposed a voting deadline of May 4th. Certain consenting note holders who have signed on to the RSA agreed to provide a $100 million junior new money secured dip facility. In addition, to implement a new equity raise, certain consenting note holders committed to providing no less than $200 million in new funds to purchase new common stock. The plan contemplates full cash payment of allowed ABL claims and general unsecured claims receiving unimpaired treatment and being paid in the ordinary course of business. First lien claim holders would receive a pro rata share of the, quote, first lien loan claims paydown amount and the exit facility. Senior notes claim holders would receive a pro rata share of 100% of new common stock, subject to dilution by the new common equity raise, equity investment commitment premium, and a management incentive plan, as well as QHC litigation trust interests. The plan documents do not yet specify a percentage for the MIP. Signatories to the RSA include funds and accounts advised or managed by entities of Golden Tree, KKR, Oak Hill, York Capital, Davidson Kempner, and Goldman Sachs. Davidson Kempner, Golden Tree, York Capital, and Oak Hill Advisors are also signatories to the equity commitment agreement. Equity holder Mudrick has objected to various first-day motions and called for the formation of an official equity committee, saying that the plan's valuation premise must be investigated, given that only a small change in valuation assumptions could put equity in the money. On Wednesday... Puerto Rico Treasury Secretary Francisco Perez projected during an economic task force update that the Commonwealth government could lose between $1.5 billion and $1.6 billion in tax revenue during the current fiscal year because of the coronavirus pandemic and the spate of earthquakes in late 2019 and early 2020. Parez noted that the Commonwealth was on track to collect roughly $11 billion in general fund revenue for the fiscal 2020, but is now projecting to close with total collections topping out at $9.4 billion. During the task force update, Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority Executive Director 
Omar Marrero, said Commonwealth creditors have to recognize that the COVID-19 pandemic has created a, quote, more complex fiscal and economic reality for everyone. Also this week, the Promesa Oversight Board published a letter to Treasury Secretary Perez, dated April 6th, indicating that the board has approved a request to authorize, quote, the one-time use of $400 million in Commonwealth funds to advance payments, so that the Commonwealth, quote, can quickly comply with and implement the cash transfers to Puerto Rico citizens contemplated by the recently enacted CARES Act. Other top stories last week were... Mallinckrodt enters into agreement to exchange $495 million of existing senior notes due April 2020 for new first lien notes. Feral Gas announces private offer of $575 million senior secured first lien notes due 2025. Proceeds to repay and terminate secured credit facility. WeWork files Delaware Chancery lawsuit against SoftBank, alleging breach of transaction agreement of obligations. Now turning it over to Sean for the latest in bankruptcies during the time of COVID-19. Thanks, Raksha. This is Sean Daly, Distressed at Legal Analyst, back for a much shorter third edition of the COVID-19 Legal Roundup. First, picking up on last week's discussion of OneWeb's Chapter 11 filing, which was precipitated by a lack of access to new capital. On Friday night, the debtors filed a dip motion seeking authority to obtain a super-priority senior-secured four-tranche term loan facility, with $75 million of new money and a sweet, sweet $225 million roll-up of participating senior secured notes. The motion says SoftBank, which holds a majority of the principal amount of the approximately $1.7 billion uh, pre-petition senior secured notes, will serve as the, quote, lead lender, and other holders of the notes will have their opportunity to participate in the dip on a pro-rata basis. The debtors say they need access to the dip to ensure that they have sufficient liquidity to operate their business while pursuing a sale process, consistent with previous representations. Cash burn for the debtors will be minimized by PIC interest, 12.5% payable monthly, with an extra 3% on top for the default rate interest rather than the more commonly seen 2%. Lender protection to keep funding commensurate with the sale process comes in the form of four draws. Tranche 1. 10 of the $75 million of new money would be available upon entry of the dip order. Uh, tranche 2, $15 million would be available upon receipt of one or more uh, non-binding letters of intent in form and substance reasonably satisfactory to SoftBank. And interestingly, for the second and third draws, the third draw, $25 million would be available upon a binding agreement. Um, but In addition to all the other conditions precedent, the second and third draws would be subject to, quote, SoftBank, well, SoftBank's, quote, receipt of final approval from investment committee to make such dip loans. And then the final milestone would be following court approval of a sale. And this goes back to uh, the the full, as dip lenders may determine, rather than than purely SoftBank, um, additional funds would be made available to the extent necessary to achieve regulatory approvals. For fans of roll-ups, there's a helpful paragraph in the motion listing prior cases with dip-to-new-money ratios in excess of one-to-one. In a small world moment, the UCC in the Murray Metallurgical Coal Holdings cases on Thursday filed a standing motion seeking to recharacterize certain debt as equity. Some of the challenge debt ultimately traces back to the dip facility in the 2018 Mission Coal bankruptcy, one of the precedent roll-up transactions cited in the OneWeb dip motion. Next, 
I'm pleased to report we should be able to stop talking about Alta Mesa going forward as the sales of its upstream and midstream assets to BCE Mach 3 closed on Thursday. The final purchase price was $5.2 million, then the headline midpoint $220 million purchase price of the renegotiated sales due to closing adjustments linked to the fluctuation on a daily basis in the price of oil. At the sale hearing on Wednesday, debtors' counsel noted the parties were looking to line up a Wednesday closing uh, originally, but the buyer had announced its intention to close on Thursday instead uh, because there would be a discount to the purchase price based on the closing adjustment mechanism. Judge Isger suggested a Friday closing, uh, given it was two days after the Wednesday hearing, could be more fair to allow both sides to uh, share the risk of an oil price fluctuation but ultimately didn't order a closing, saying uh, the parties were probably both operating in good faith to try and get you know the most favorable mark to them. And I guess it's perhaps fitting that uh, this case, which you know had so many issues with closing and, and trying to enforce um, various rights, you know, ultimately came down to again a, a discrepancy of closing by a day, um, although. You know, at, at two or three percent of the reduced purchase price, I I dare say that any fluctuations are still better for the buyer than having been forced to close at a hundred million dollars higher. Sanchez Energy filed a plan of reorganization and a disclosure statement with an estimated enterprise value of approximately sixty-five to ninety-five million, with an eighty million dollar midpoint. For scale, that's total enterprise value relative to approximately one hundred and fifty million dollars of dip claims. The plan has an interesting structure to account for the various lien-related re- litigation, pursuant to which unsecured creditors say approximately 80% of the debtor's core value may not be subject to valid liens based on asserted prepetition filing deficiencies. To get around the tension between a desire to emerge quickly from Chapter 11 and cut the estate's cash burn, but preserve the lien-related re- litigation, the plan would distribute 20% of pre-dilution reorganized equity to the dip lenders upon emergence, and the remaining 80% of reorg equity would be distributed only upon fo- following resolution of the lien-related litigation, which, again, could see value shift to unsecured creditors if lien challenges are ultimately successful. As put by the debtors' counsel at a hearing earlier in the week, uh, the parties can continue to fight, but just no longer on the estate's dime. There's an April 30th combined disclosure statement and confirmation hearing in Sanchez. Lastly, a general point illustrated by PG&E, one of the arguments made in the official tort claimants committee's motion for supplemental disclosure, which was ultimately denied, as noted earlier, was that, quote, the coronavirus worldwide tragedy is devaluing the fire victim fire victim claimant's share of PG&E's equity in an amount lower than the $6.75 billion value, as included in the plan. Just a reminder to keep an eye on whether the allocation of value in a plan or term sheet is driven by percentage terms versus absolute dollar amounts. And that's it for me this week. Stay healthy and look forward to speaking to you next week. Back to you, Raksha. Thanks, John. Now here's Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for listening and hoping you and y'alls are safe and comfy. Ain't a lot scheduled for Monday, April 13th, so let's go right to April 14th, which is larded with largely court hearings, including a second-day hearing in Intermap, a DS hearing in Murray Energy, 
Hearings in Dean and McDermott and a settlement omnibus hearing in PG&E. There's earnings from Cons Furniture Retailer before the open with a call at 11 a.m. Wednesday, April 15th, Frontier has about $230 million worth of coupons due on five series of notes. Pixis has $12 million due on its first liens due 21, and IntelSat has $125 million due on its 8.5 IntelSat Jackson Senior Notes. Outside of that, we have an interim cash collateral hearing in Whiting and a combined plan DS hearing in Pioneer. There's earnings after the close from Bed Bath & Beyond. Thursday, April 16th, hearings in Modell, Rent Path, White Star, PG&E again, Sanchez, and there's also earnings from Rite Aid. And Friday, April 17th, lease rejection hearing in Kraftwerk. This is not Kraftwerk. The reclusive and eccentric German purveyors of already electronic dance music whose biggest hit catalog the gemütlich kite joys of driving on the Autobahn, but Kraftwerk, an operator of craft beer-focused casual dining restaurants here in the good old U.S. of A. Anyways, if you're sitting at home bored, maybe you're waiting around for the Ultimace or Status Conference or the Foresight hearing, both of which are also today why don't you just look up a Kraftwerk concert or watch a clip or something and boys sure knew how to live it up. It's more fun than a dinner on the grounds like we did back in old days or a picking party like we used to do every July 21st. Anyways, that would seem to be about it for the week. Thank y'all and back to you in New York. Now, here's love to run through Muni News. Thank you, Raksha. Today I'll be providing an update on developments in the municipal debt market. To provide a bit of an overview, the municipal bond market totals about $4.1 trillion, and split between two main types of bonds. General obligation, or GO bonds, which are backed by taxes in about a third of the space, and revenue bonds, which are backed by project-specific revenues like infrastructure, and make up the rest. COVID-19 has had a very dramatic impact on the market, which saw unprecedented volatility in March. That volatility was potentially exacerbated by some unique market characteristics, including high fragmentation with over 50,000 issuers, significant percentage of individual rather than institutional holders, and significant security-level complexity, especially for revenue bonds. A broad theme has been that COVID-19 and the corresponding lockdowns have dramatically changed day-to-day life. That, in turn, is hitting previously stable revenue streams, ranging from airports to convention centers to malls, and we'll get into some of those individual credits shortly. In terms of market dynamics, in March, really saw unprecedented volatility in the space, with large broad-based indices, like ones encompassing all revenue bonds and all IG credits, seeing some days with volatility 13 times above historical average. Riskier subsectors, like nursing homes and life care, experienced some days with 17 sigma events. So in absolute terms, the volume might not have been as high as some other spaces, but on a relative basis, it was pretty extraordinary. As a result of that volatility, the primary market essentially shut down towards the end of March. That was particularly problematic because states need to borrow given the delay in income tax receipts, as well as the vast cost of providing unemployment support given what is now 16.8 million um, unemployment filings in just the last three weeks. Some recent Federal Reserve intervention has improved things somewhat, but the market remains touch and go. Now, turning to some specific credits, I think it makes sense to start with airports, as that's a sector that's been very directly impacted by the COVID-19 shutdowns. The last few months have been a tremendous decline in volume, as international flights have been essentially barred and domestic travel is highly limited. Based on TSA data, 
relative to March of last year, airport traffic is down about 95%. For instance, let's take O'Hare in Chicago. Um, as of 2018, the latest data available had about 7.5 billion revenue bonds outstanding, including <clears throat> the 2015 revenue bonds featured in our recent report. The 2015 revenue bonds totaled about 2 billion in four series. They were issued for a combination of airport improvements, to refinance existing debt, and for certain reserve funds. Interestingly, the issuer on those bonds was the city of Chicago directly, rather than a conduit, which is a bit unusual for the space. The bonds were hit very hard towards the end of March. For instance, 2030 maturity, with about 118 million on standing, dropped from 117 to 99 on March 17th. Then it fell a further 10 points, and has recovered somewhat this week towards 104, but still significantly below where it was in terms of the revenue and the security structure for the bonds, the obligations are secured by a first-link pledge of revenues, which consists of all amounts received by the city for use and operation of O'Hare Airport. As a practical matter, there are basically two buckets of cash flows backing the bonds. Airline-specific fees, such as landing fees and terminal rentals, and then charges from concessionaires like restaurants in the terminal. Between 2010 and 2014, total operating revenues at O'Hare increased from about $700 million to $844 million. So normally, it's a steady, predictable, and increasing revenue stream, which all things equal is well-suited to sustain even a significant debt load. There are some notable bondholder protections as well, including a 110% debt service coverage ratio covenant, which essentially would require the city to raise rates if there's a shortfall. And there are also meaningful reserves that can be used to make payments if, if there's a shortfall there. At the same time, the airline contracts with airports are fairly firm, even in bankruptcy, though it's worth noting that there are some divergent views on that. But in a state of the world where the airlines might see government support, it's not clear how hard the city of Chicago might be willing or able to push. So ultimately, the credit profile might really depend on the length of the COVID-19 shutdowns, as well as the shape of the recovery on the other side, especially with respect to air travel. Now, turning to another interesting muni structure, the American Dream Mall in New Jersey. Provide a bit of background. American Dream Mall is located in New Rutherford, in North New Jersey. The project has a long, winding history, with multiple stops and starts over the course of a decade plus. It's a fun anecdote, New Jersey's former governor, Chris Christie, once described it as the ugliest building in the state. The mall is part of the Metal and Sports Complex, which is adjacent to the MetLife Stadium and a large New Jersey transit station. It's composed of three primary assets, an entertainment complex, indoor amusement park, and certain related infrastructure. Parts of the site have been open for a few months now, but its long-anticipated official opening was scheduled for March 19th, and that had to be delayed because of COVID-19. So the mall has yet to generate the significant visitor traffic the developer was expecting. The project was financed in three primary pieces. About $550 million of developer equity, which was put in by Triple Five Group. $1.6 billion construction facility that was led by J.P. Morgan. And then $1.1 billion of tax-exempt muni bonds. The munis were issued in two tranches. $800 million of payment in lieu of taxes, or pilot bonds. And then about $300 million of grant revenue bonds supported by anticipated sales tax revenues. Now, with respect to the pilots, that's a very interesting structure. In highly simplified terms, pursuant to an agreement between New Rutherford and Triple Five Group, tax payments that the developer would normally make to New Rutherford are instead routed to the bond trustee. 
So the pilot bonds are secured by that revenue stream, which is used to make principal and interest payments to holders. The bonds were not rated by any of the major agencies at issuance. Like the rest of the sectors, the bonds were hit fairly hard recently and have not yet meaningfully recovered. The biggest tranche of pilots, 500 million, traded down 22 points on March 20th, dropping from 120 to 98, and then this week fell further to about 95. Now, moving along in the Northeast, another notable muni issuer is New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA. The MTA is the nation's largest and busiest public transit system. In 2019, system-wide ridership was about $2.4 billion. It's about five times more than Chicago's transit system. The impact of COVID-19 has been very significant, with ridership down about 90% on the MTA subway lines and as much as 94% on the Metro North Railroad. Now, turning to the debt structure, MTA has about $45.3 billion in municipal obligations. It's a very complex structure with hundreds of tranches and some distinct priorities amongst them. Given the significant amount of outstanding debt, the debt service is significant, expected to total a bit over $1.6 billion for 2020. Importantly, the MTA's transportation revenue bonds have a no-bankruptcy covenant. Under that covenant, state law prohibits the MTA or its affiliates from filing for bankruptcy under Chapter 9. And the state itself has covenanted not to change the law as long as any of the revenue bonds are outstanding. MTA's revenues for 2019 were about $14 billion, which I think of in three main buckets. The largest is fair revenues, which total about $6.7 billion, and subsidies of about $5 billion, and the third bucket of various non-operating revenues and some surplus funds. Now, given the sharp fall in ridership, revenues for the MTA have been down very dramatically, and a lot of the expenses are relatively fixed. So it was reported in late March that MTA was seeking financial assistance from the state, about $4 billion. Its liquidity position right now appears solid with about $3.8 billion in total, and the CARES Act stimulus provided an aggregate of about $25 billion for public transit system, with about $4 billion of that expected to be allocated towards the MTA. New York's 2020 state budget addition allows the MTA to borrow as much as $10 billion for operating expenses. Given the complexity of the structure, the MTA's bonds have been trading a bit all over the place. For instance, 2018 revenue anticipation notes fell from par to about 82 between mid-March and April 1st, but have moved back towards par this week. In contrast, a series of 2020 certified green bonds dropped from 116 in mid-March all the way to 88 this week, and a series of 2017 capital appreciation bonds, which matures in 2032, is trading down at 56. Turning a bit to the policy side, this week the Federal Reserve announced truly unprecedented levels of support for the muni market. Specifically, the Fed's municipal liquidity facility will offer as much as $500 billion for states and municipalities. There are, of course, some limitations, perhaps most notably that it's limited to muni's maturities under 24 months, so sticking at the relatively short end of the curve. But it still nevertheless represents a pretty significant expansion of the Federal Reserve's intervention in the space, as previous programs were primarily limited to providing what I think of as indirect support by allowing munis to be used as collateral for lending. The municipal liquidity facility is structured broadly similar to the Fed's prior liquidity programs. Pursuant to the structure, the Federal Reserve lends to an SPV, 
which in turn is a vehicle that actually buys immunity bonds. That structure is due to some limitations under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, under which the facility is authorized. Treasury is making an initial equity investment of about $35 billion in the SPV, which again will be able to purchase as much as $500 billion of eligible municipal notes. And that's all for me. Now back to you, Connor. Thanks, Lev. And thank you for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the Reorg site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Of course, as always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. Have a happy Passover and Easter.